I don't think the LGBTQ issue matters for Muslims. Because as someone who works day to day in the Muslim community, to say that the LGBT thing is like a top five thing for me, even a top 10 thing for me. It doesn't even like, it's something that's, of course, like I said, Islamically clear, 100% is something that we have to deal with and work with, sure. But it's not even top five for me. Omar Nassimi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, bro. Dude, man, it's a pleasure. Let's go. Doing... I'm happy you come on again, man. Oh, man. I, we love having you on every time. Sure. Dude, you're going, doing great work, man. Thank you. I appreciate man, I love you, you bro. I honestly thought for a second you were going to say you're growing a beard. I was like, I am. I see that too. I am. <laughs> I'm the, uh... It's coming in. Yeah, because people in the before were like, dude, you have a Muslim podcast and you don't have a beard. You're just going. I'm like, bro, I can't grow one. <laughs> so now that I can, it's, it's kind of nice. Hey, man, wherever you're at, bro, with the beard game. So Omar, recently you're working uh, at Adams Center and you're one of the leaders of creating a third space in that environment in Northern Virginia, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful location along with Maryland and DC in the United States. And I didn't come to really appreciate the third spaces and how much it solves of the, the issues until I went to Dallas. Can you basically tell us what's the process design? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, like I'm, this is something I'm really excited about, and really passionate about is the whole point that I'm trying to make is that we have to create institutions of belonging for every single Muslim. Every single Muslim that says, Ashhadu la ilaha Muhammad Rasulullah, you have to create a place for them to belong, period. And that is what we're trying to do is pull people in to the mainstream Muslim community, right? Um, and so for us, like, there's a lot of data that has come out about this. Like if you look at ISPU, Sister Dalia Mujahid and the team over there are doing some wonderful work. If you look at the data in terms of Muslim belonging, it's really interesting. So ages uh, 18 to 29, so this is like the kind of college, young professional Muslims in America, when they're surveyed, and this is 2022 when the survey was done, so last year, how many of them say that Islam is important to them? What do you think the number is? Like at least someone important to them. 60%. 96%. of Muslims in America, that's all kinds of Muslims, liberal, conservative, barely Muslim, all the way, like everyone, right? Of Muslims 18 to 29 years old that were surveyed, 96% said that Islam was important to them. Hmm. And that includes like, I'm including two categories, which is people who say it's very important to them and people who say it's somewhat important to them, right? So if you add that up, 4% say it's not really important to them. Everyone else, 96%, say it is important to them in their life. But if you look at attendance within mainstream Muslim communities, guess how many people come to the masjid regularly? 20%. 30%. So it's close, but that includes Jummah. So 30% of that demographic come at least once a week, and that's Jummah. If you take Jummah out of it, it's like 3 to 4%. So if you look at the numbers, again, 96% say Islam is important to them. They want to belong to the Muslim community. They're saying this themselves. They want a place where they can come to and they can feel comfortable, they can feel invited, they can feel welcome, which is what the community of the Prophet Muhammad was. It was inviting, it was welcoming, it let people exist. It didn't constantly police them nonstop. Of course, Islam, we have rules, regulations, etc. We have norms that we have to maintain. We're not compromising on that. But you have to be welcoming to people. If only 3% of the community out of that 96% that is asking for belonging and you're giving that to them, we cannot say as a Muslim community that LGBT or whatever else and whatever else is our top priority. That's the top priority right there. The top priority is people are looking for Islam and are we giving it to them? And so our, our design at Qahwa um, is we are actively looking for, again, the gap between 30% who come once a week and that's people who come for Jama and everyone else part of that 30% that comes once a week, they're people who are already attached to the community. They're already, they have, they know people, they're there, they grew up in the community probably. It's that gap between the the the, the, the 30% that come once a week and the 96% that say they want community. So that's 66%. And that's our target demographic. And so our methodology and what we try to do at Qahwa is to try to create Qahwa is the cafe that's within Adam Center. It's a nonprofit. It's part of the Adam Center Institution. I'm employed by Adam Center, but I run the programs at Qahwa. Um, our methodology is to create programs and events that appeal to people's interests, but doing that inside the mission. So, for example, like we have events on like AI, right? 
society and AI. So we brought in, like we had a panel discussion, we brought in a university professor who's a, uh, a Muslim professor uh, who has specialization in ethics. And we have a, we had a, a brother who is a, a policy expert. So he's looking at it from the example of how do you regulate this? And then we had a, a brother who actually has an AI company, like he's working on AI. So, so how do you do it? Do you, do you look uh, a week ahead in advance and schedule and say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Do people, does the community already know beforehand yeah. that Qahwa on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays usually have events, for example? Yeah. So generally we have two types of events. We have the, reg the weekly regularly recurring. So we have a Tuesday event that's recurring for men. We have a Thursday event called The Grounding, uh, which is recurring for 18 plus, uh, led by South Saad. And that's like we're talking about contemporary issues that are happening in the world. Um, things like, you know, philosophical stuff, contemporary issues in the news, Palestine, etc. We're talking about like uh, humanism as a philosophical, like we're talking about a bunch of stuff, gender, etc. Um, and then we have, so we have weekly recurrence of Sunday morning. We have another one for like 30 plus, uh, similar to the Roots model. And then, and then we have the one-off big events. The one-off events are meant to like drive people in and then they stay for the recurring ones to try to build that relationship. So for the one-off big events we do, we have like, we have open mic nights, we have like poetry, uh, spoken word, things like that. We have art, uh, art-based events. So events where people come and like paint, we have like paint nights and we have like, uh, we had a sister come in who does tatris, which is like the Palestinian uh, embroidery. Uh, we had uh, uh, a brother come in to teach calligraphy we had um, uh, stuff on mental health. We have, so we have opportunities uh, uh, for people to come in with their interests. We had like a food festival. Um, so people can come in, get some food. And then we had, we actually had a car meet uh, right outside Adam Center. So people came in with their supercars and then we had food there. We had vendors. Uh, we had like volleyball. So it was just like a community atmosphere. And then at night we had a discussion, like a talk about uh, spiritual guidance. So we're trying to create mechanisms by which like the interests that people have, whether their interests are professional development, we also have like networking events. So companies can come in and also people who are advanced in their careers can come in and they give advice to like younger people. Um, networking events, professional development, artistic stuff, political stuff, social uh, life, meeting friends and having discussions on contemporary issues, sports, basketball, volleyball, etc. So all the interests that people have outside the masjid, we try to create a home for that within the masjid. Um, and that's the goal. The goal is to get people in the door. Because once you get people in the door, you get them introduced. Your environment obviously has to be comfortable and welcoming, etc. Once they get introduced to the masjid, then you can retain them. They break the, you break the ice. Exactly. You break that barrier. And I can tell you, there's so many stories, bro. There's so many stories that I know of personally that people have told me. There was a sister last year in Ramadan. She was like weeping. Young sister, like in her early 20s. Just weeping, like crying. So one of the sisters that I know went up to her and asked her, like, hey, are you okay? What's going on? Uh, is everything okay? And she was like, you know, she was like, I gr she grew up Muslim. She was like, I grew up Muslim, but I never, ever came to the masjid. And this is the first Ramadan that I started coming. And this is the first time that I've experienced Ramadan in the masjid before. And she lives like 10 minutes from Adams. But she just, that was not her relationship with the masjid. Hmm. And she said, I've never felt this before. Like, I've never felt the power of uh, Jama'ah, I've never felt the power of like prayer, I've never felt the power of Islam. And she said, this is the first time. And the way that she started coming to the masjid is because her friend invited her to a Qahu event that was just social. Subhan. And this is the point, is that once you introduce people, you have to create mechanisms and avenues for people to be able to feel comfortable. They feel like they're welcome there. They feel like, you know, uh, um, they're, they belong in the institution, it's particularly for women. And this is a problem I think a lot of our institutions have is, is we create spaces that are really good for conservative men. And it sucks for everyone else. <laughs> and I think that's something we have to be careful of. We don't want to isolate the conservative men either because they also have like a lot of conservative men have come up to me and expressed their concern about the like, they're like, they don't want to basically see women in the same space as them. You have to give everyone their due, right? So even the conservatives, men, women, etc. They're due their space. So a lot of people want a sanctuary when they come into the masjid, right? They don't want to have to negotiate the gender boundary. They don't want to have to see a sister that, you know, they're like attracted now all of a sudden and like they don't want to, they don't know what to do with that. They don't, they don't want to have to no, deal they with they gotta go pray. They don't want to have to deal with that, like, right? They want to come to the masjid and feel like I'm isolated from all the problems in the world. They don't want to have to deal with like, 
you know, a lot of the stuff they deal with outside. And that's, I understand that. Like that perspective is definitely valid. And that is something like we're working towards. But for me, it's like there, that, those avenues already exist for you in the masjid. There's plenty of like, we have many programs, classes, et cetera, at Adam Center that already have that built in where it's completely gender segregated. Uh, you come in, you get your prayer, you get your worship uh, in, a, in a helm, like formats, traditional knowledge. You have to be able to do both. Like you have to be able to create belonging, as I said, for everyone. Everyone, kids, uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, young professionals, married people, people with children, elderly people, seniors, everyone. Like if your masjid community does not have space welcoming for everyone, then that's something we got to work on. Um, because it's a numbers game, bro. Like you're, you said in the beginning, right? Like how many people, Muslims are there in America? We got to grow that number. Like, how are you going to grow that number if you're kicking people out all the time? And that for me is like my primary goal and focus and what I'm trying to do um, is to really build mechanisms and institutions where people belong within the Muslim community. You know, what's profound about what you're saying is even when I was growing up, obviously, as you know, I, I wasn't very close to Islam. And one of the choices that's always been presented to me, even with myself, I'm like, it's Friday night, Saturday night. I would scroll through Instagram and all these places to see if there's any Muslim events happening. And there isn't any. So I'm like, mm, no Muslim events. Okay. My friend hits me up. Hey, you want to go wherever? I'm like, all right. Yeah. And, but I would first try to go to a Muslim event, but none exists. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I had to, when I wanted to turn back to Islam, I had to basically choose between mm -hmm. my desires or loneliness. And I knew that. And so I chose loneliness. And that was a very tough time period in my life. Uh, and then when, you know, third spaces started arising and stuff, especially when I made my move to Dallas, that loneliness disappeared. What you're mm. talking about got cured for me. I, I am someone who's lived everything that you're speaking of. And for the young Omar Nassimis out there, right, Muslims that we want to continue building across the country, not just in Adams Center in Virginia, what, what do you tell them? How, what's the process to getting there? How do they approach their message and go, we need a third space? Uh, that's a great question, man. And, and I think, I appreciate you sharing that perspective of like what you went through too, man. Because that's something that I also experienced. Like, even though I'm someone that like grew up in the community, I grew up in the message, my dad's an imam. But that doesn't mean you're not lonely. That doesn't mean because loneliness comes from like that feeling of like what you are going through specifically or what you are experiencing uh, is separate from other people um, because the the interests that I had, the ideas that I had, the passions that I had, creativity, things that I wanted to do, I didn't find room for that in the mission, right? Um, and so for me, I think that the way to start going about that within your Muslim community and your masjid and to start developing that space is first of all, you have to have a relationship with your community, with your mission. A lot of people I'm seeing this will come in to the board, will come in to employees at uh, any mission, any environment. And this applies outside the Muslim community too. It's just, this is the nature of how things get done. When you are somebody that no one sees and you're not there and all of a sudden you show up and you're like, hey, I want to start this event. I want to start this thing. Give me money. I want to do this. I want to renovate this room and turn it into a youth room. Uh, give me $20,000, $30,000. I want to get this coffee machine and do this whole setup. If no one knows you, who you are, where you've been, what you've done for the community, they're not going to listen to you. Fundamentally, it is about building relationships with people. Like the Amus, the uncles in the community, the aunties, you they have to know you, dude. Like you have to be there. You got to be showing up. You got to be there for Aisha. You got to be showing up for Halakas. You got to be building relationships with them. You got to understand what they're going through and what they're thinking about and how are you a service for them. You have to build trust. You have to build that trust and that in that in that like relationship, right? And I think that's some and this applies to everything in life, man. Like there's a lot of people who just want the easy way in. Like, hey, I have this idea. I want you to fund my idea. I have this like event I want to start, right? This podcast I want to start, right? Like I have this thing, I want you to give me all the money for it. And everyone's gonna look at you like, Who are you, bro? Like <laughs> Exactly. Like what have you where have you been? Like, what have you been doing? Like, are you someone are you a regular volunteer? Are you somebody that puts in hours with the community? Like 
uh, rolling up carpets? Are you like passing off? Are you like getting to helping get donations? Are you helping to build a website? Are you like involved in like the parking lot problems? Are you involved in like, there's real issues in the community that if you're not involved in and you're not putting the work in, no one's gonna listen to you, bro. That's number one, like you gotta be putting in the work. And then if you're in that place and you wanna start having that conversation about, hey, let's start doing some new things, of course, there's gonna be challenges. Pahua took 10 years to get built at Adams, 10 years. From the point that the youth at Adams Center had this idea of a cafe inside the masjid and they proposed it to the board, they even found money for it, they raised money for it, et cetera. It took 10 years. So what is that? Because of what we, you're for a lot of for a lot of reasons. One, there's other priorities, right? Like the board and whoever else, the masjid leadership has certain priorities, right? They have a budget, they have certain things that they're trying to get done, whether expanding the masjid, whether like they have this issue, we, have, we have a lack of we have a lack of parking. We can't pay our imams. Like there's immediate needs, right? That people have. And so that's part of it. Two is like it's a political problem where it's like, you know, it's, it doesn't align necessarily with the vision of the leadership sometimes. And three is also it didn't, there wasn't always like a person consistently trying to make that happen. And I think that's the thing. Like if you really dedicate yourself to something, you got to dedicate yourself. You'd be like, this is something that I want to create. And inshallah, now it's getting easier because. Um, so what's the second step, by the way? So, so the first step is, is you got to be there. Build relationships. People, build relationships. You got to know people like you have to be in with them. They have to feel a sense of comfort and trust from you that this is someone that we can rely on. And this is someone that like has good intentions. Um, two, I would say, is you have to create the argument that has to do with money. And this is the big part that everyone misses. You have to make a financial argument of why your program should exist. And the best argument to make is that this brings money to the masjid. And does it? Has Qahwa been bringing yeah. in money? Not a lot, but yeah. Is it like we're, we're net positive, which is what matters. Uh, like the money that we're putting in day to day, not the initial investment, but like day to day. We're, we're pot, like we're actually, I'm probably one of the only positions like my role that actually generates revenue for the mission. Hmm. Uh, because like the, what I do uh, in making programs and events and also having the coffee shop, coffee shop creates money, uh, not a lot, but in like it's positive. Uh, it's more than negative. <laughs> it's more than, more than neutral. But then on top of that, like, the events that we do, we charge ticket prices. Hmm. And so people are generating revenue for the mission. So, Number two, you have to like build relation. Number one, build relationships with the people in power. Number two, you have to financially prove why this makes sense. Okay, so basically, like almost put together a PowerPoint for stakeholders to yeah. show the cost. You, you have to, to like you can't again. It's like you either you raise the money yourself, or you show how you're going to get the money back and uh, be positive in terms of like bringing revenue. And the easiest argument to make is like. Um, in terms of new customer acquisition, which is like the business marketing term for it, which is like, let's say right now your community is a thousand people and you have uh, 200 regular donors. Um, if you make the argument and say, if we do this investment, our community will grow to 1500 people with 400 regular donors. It's a, that's a really compelling case to make if you've increased your regular donors by 100%. And that's, I think, the perspective like what Roots does, for example, it's a really good model. They have monthly subscribers. They have monthly donors. People around the country who don't even live in Dallas are donating monthly to Roots and the Qalam. Same thing with Zaytuna. Same thing with ICNYU. Uh, same thing with uh, Ta'lif uh, in Chicago and in the Bay. So there's, you create these, you create a mechanism that's financially sustainable for yourself, for your community, and also generates revenue. And that's like an important piece. Then number three, I would say is your marketing has to be really good. Like, there's a lot of apps now, templates, et cetera, on Canva, et cetera, that you can use. But your marketing has to be really appealing, both to the, uh, it elevates the brand of the meshit itself or the third space or whatever, and also is inviting to, it makes it cool, re relevant, and stuff that's like, people actually really want to vibe with and, and, and be around. And I think that's, the, the main thing is number three, it has to be good. Like the, the brand quality. has to be, yeah, the brand and quality of the product has to be good because that's what's solving the issue. Exactly. Right? No one wants to come to a whack event where like, if it has a whack flyer and like, like, you know what I mean? Like you have to create the vibe. The whole reason the Muslims are coming is they, they want to be in a cool Muslim yeah. space, you know? Like, exactly. So yeah, like number three, I would say is like, it's not just the marketing, it's like, it's it's the vibe, right? Like you have to create everything from when you walk into the space, the lighting, like what kind of snacks and coffee do you got there? Like, uh, what's the, the seating arrangement? Like, is it comfortable, right? Is it like the space attic, all that kind of stuff. So like, you have to check the vibe, bro. Like, 
So number one, relationships with the elders. Uh, number two, money. How does this financially make sense? And number three, the vibe, bro. And you can start creating to do that. brand, creating social yeah. media, all that stuff. It's all looped into like um, the, the the front facing element of the program that you're trying to do. And then number four, I would say is like programmatically, you have to have a, a model that makes sense. So for us, we have it on a funnel model. So basically, the funnel is that we have a wide range of people's interests that we know that these are things that people care about. We know that these are things that in my specific community, that these are the things that people like, they want, such as like if it's food events, is it stuff about like uh, the LGBT stuff? You want to have discussions about that? Is it basketball tournaments? Is it whatever it is, like fashion stuff? Is it like whatever? You have to kind of know your people, right? And whatever your your people in your community are into, is it video game tournaments? Whatever it is that your people are into, you put that all into the funnel, right? And as people are coming in, you funnel them down into the mainstream Muslim community in the mission. And that I think is it's the programmatic work of like actually designing the event um, is the is the really hard part. They're all, it's all hard, but it's it's the really nuanced part, which is like you have to make people feel welcome when they come in the room, uh, like it's speaking to them personally. You have to create a culture with a cult. Right, you have to create the sense of like my interests are represented here, my things that I'm into. Because everyone nowadays, bro, let's be real, everyone has personal taste, personal interests, right? Uh, people are Nike people versus Adidas people. People are like, you know, I'm a, a like a Starbucks guy versus being a craft drink guy, right? Like I'm a I'm a filtered bottled water guy versus like a natural. Everyone has like preferences and tastes, so you have to kind of know your community and what their tastes and preferences are, and cater to that, such that when they show up at the event, they feel like their interests are represented. And I think the way, you, also programmatically, the way you do that is you have to have programmatic mechanisms in the space itself, like icebreakers, small group discussions things that you can do for the event itself to not just be lectures all the time, um, but you have to make it dynamic. Is there a number five before I ask you my next question? Uh, consistency is number five. So like you have to, so the funnel is you bring them in and how do you retain them? Um, mm. You can't just do one-off stuff. You have to have like regular occurring weekly stuff. Right. I remember once someone told me that the Jewish American community has a program where if a Jewish American young person wants to become a doctor, but they don't have the financial means, that there is a program or an institution that will pay for their medical school. And the only condition is, is when they become a doctor and graduate, they also donate to the institution, which will then mm -hmm. get yep. other people. Basically, a well-oiled machine mm -hmm. to pump out Jewish American doctors. And it's, it's a beautiful idea. Um, how how do we get this mentality into the drinking water in, mm. of Muslims Americans and get them to realize that something that you and I I, I believe realize that your success is my success mm. and that I seeing you succeed or seeing Muslims succeed in general will lead to all of our success. That's a great question, man. Um, that is my ultimate goal, man. Is everything that I do is trying to build up the Muslim Ummah. Um, and there's a lot of people like this who are also working in many institutions in many ways to try to do that same thing. And I think what we're missing is this understanding that at the end of the day, everything at the end of the day is temporary. Um, and the only things that last are the things that we do for Allah. Um, ironically, there's other communities that have that in a dunyawi sense, which is like, the only thing that matters is the survival of my community. So for example, like the Jewish community 100 years ago when they showed up here, not sure. I mean, they've been here for a while, but like 100 years ago, there's a very conscious, in the late 20th, late 19th century, early 20th century, very conscious effort, and just been well documented. The Jewish community went out and like, we have to establish ourselves. So they became very highly educated. They started businesses. They got into all kinds of uh, avenues, uh, and they really built themselves up. This is a personal thing, right? So this is not like what everyone thinks, and this might be controversial or not, but my solution is you have to build Muslim culture. And there's other people like uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson, others who have made this argument, Omar Farouk Abdullah, and it was like, you have to make Muslim culture. And they, I don't necessarily mean like Muslim TV. I don't necessarily mean like, you know, having a Muslim channel or like having halal shows or like Rami or whatever. You know, Rami's not very halal, but uh, not that's, not what, that's not what I'm talking <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you have to make Islam normal. Such that if a Muslim is doing anything they're just like, oh, he's, that's, he's just doing his thing. He's a Muslim guy. Um, 
there's a growing understanding. So I think for Muslims, we have to build the norm of Islam within American society in the West. Once that happens, Muslims will much more freely associate with Islam. And once that happens, the Muslim community will start to build itself. Because the Muslims right now are still in a place where they're negotiating their place within the community. And like I said, 60, the majority of people, the 66% of that young professional crowd, do not have an association with the community. And that's what we need to change. We need to make it normal. We need to make it normal for Muslims to part to want to participate in the Muslim community. And the way you do that, in my opinion, is by making Islam culturally normal. And I'll give you an example let, of what let, I mean. Let me, let me push back with you on this okay. theory. Because I think in, in London uh, or the UK in general, or specifically Britain, Muslims have had this cultural norm successful, right? It's normal to be Muslim in Britain, at least from what I've heard from mm -hmm. the people that live there that are Muslim. Yet their institutions are not in check like this. Mm -hmm. I don't think their institutions are that powerful. Given that Muslims are a very high population in Britain, to my knowledge, and their president does not care what they think at all. In fact, I feel like we as Muslims have had more effect in America on our yeah. political system than they have relative. Right. Relative. So it's a good point. That's a really good point. It's a really good pushback. And I'll say two things to that. Number one, it's because they intentionally don't want to be part of the larger mainstream in, in the UK. They intentionally, the majority of them, want to create enclaves of South Asian or, or Arab or Yemeni or Somali enclaves in their neighborhoods where they're like, we just want to exist as Yemenis in this neighborhood and we want to hang out and have jobs, etc. And we're good. Leave us alone. And if you want to have that, that's perfectly fine. But that's the mentality of Muslims in Europe for the most part. Uh, not Again, it's you, you can't generalize to that level, but for a lot of people, they just want to create their bubble. Exclusive communities. Yeah, they want to create their thing within the West. Totally fine. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like what Muslims in America are trying to do, I think it's a very different project. We're trying to set the tone for everyone. And I think that's the difference is like, creating Islam as a norm for everyone, such that if someone converts to Islam in America, it's not seen as like, whoa, right? It's like, oh, okay, cool. There's like someone switching to like, it's it's so normal in the, what, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the mainstream, such that if someone converts, it's not seen as like a weird thing. Yeah. Because Islam is so respected, it's so honored, it's so, uh, uh, it, it's so, understood in the mainstream such that when someone does it it's not strange if you see a muslim praying it's not strange if you see a muslim not only that but it's it's desirable and if you actually look at muslim history that's how muslims largely got conversions was because of muslims gained power so they went to syria they went to iraq they went to north africa etc they conquered they gained power but in a lot of those lands research has been done it took for example in the abbasid empire it took 200 years, or maybe during Basit, I can't remember, took 200 years from the point that they conquered Syria for the majority of the people to become Muslim, 51% majority, 200 years. It happens very slowly, but when Muslims are in a place of authority, of power, of real, like, uh, of cultural, economic, political sovereignty and power, and we're holding our own together, everyone wants to be in with those people. Everyone wants to be part of that group. Everyone starts to ask, why, why do those people believe that? What are they actually doing? Why are they praying like that? Why are they dressing like that? But if don't, you're, the, if you're this like... Don't our enemies know hmm? this? Don't people, our enemies that are actively working against us know this? And we hear them talking about this. Yeah. That they, we should not allow the Muslims to get to a certain population. We should not allow the Muslims to get to a certain power structure. Because this happens. Yeah. And that's why you got to do it anyway. <laughs> that's but exactly the point. Us? No, because again, it's like the growing the number of Muslims right now is growing exponentially. Like the amount of conversions, the amount of institutions that are being built, everyday churches and synagogues, et cetera, are being shut down. I haven't, I haven't heard of any massages shutting down in America. It's a remarkable fact. Remarkable. Have you, do you can you can you think of a single masjid that had to shut down totally permanently? I can't think of any. Not only that, but everyday masjids are growing. So that's what I'm saying. There's and it's it's not just immigration. It's not just like Muslims coming over here. It's because people are converting. People are establishing families. They're having children. Those children are having children. So there's a there's a growth that's happening because Muslims are thriving in a space where other people are also now recognizing that that's something they want to be a part of. And largely, it's because there's nothing left, dude. For a while, it was, there was a, there was a wave when I was growing up, new atheism, right? New atheism. There's like Richard Dawkins. There was a Christopher Hitchens. There's all these dudes, Sam Harris. 
who really were making the argument that like you have to leave traditional religion you have to become like a modern secular person to no truly one, be an intellectual yeah it's a modern intellectual and sophisticated so no one's making that argument anymore dude that argument has completely died you don't see any public intellectuals talking about that anymore why is because they saw that what happens when you destroy traditional institutions norms culture and society you have nothing you have just nihilism and you have this crisis uh, this opioid crisis again deaths of despair suicide uh, lack of uh, loneliness belonging incredible death nihilism beauty exactly there's just so many crises that emerge what happened with trump rising it's it's not that you get like freedom you get something much worse you get like totalitarianism when you have like this complete collapse of meaning so that argument has been completely wiped out so now like there's what's left dude like atheism is done for the most part like very rare to find a real atheist like you'll, you'll, you'll find a lot of people who are like i don't know if there's a god maybe maybe not and there's a lot of people who are kind of going about their day and not really caring but to find a devout atheist who's like there is absolutely no god is very very rare so that's done uh christianity is by day by day losing its power and losing its relevance because christianity is everything and nothing at the same time it's like they accept everything they reject everything they're like it's not really clear what their beliefs are there's so many different beliefs and they've also decided to ally with zionists who exactly secretly hate them exactly so they're exactly so there's like all these weird things they're doing judaism you can't really convert to judaism because the ethnic thing and then uh, and buddhism then, went through a wave early and then it ended it and then it ended because there's like no real two. structure to buddhism nothing, it's like yeah. there's not really something that retains you within a community and then and then uh and then with like now it's like for a while it's like wokeism leftism right where it's like this emergence of this this political secular ideology of just being like a like a human a humanist right you just care about certain things even that's dying now because again same problems it's like it doesn't actually solve your spiritual crisis it doesn't actually make you feel at home within something so there's nothing left, dude. It's like Islam is not emerging in a vacuum where people are really hurting. They're dying. They're lonely. They're depressed. They're frustrated. They're, they're frustrated. They're they're like they're they're having problems in every aspect of their life. They're riddled riddled with debt. You graduate nowadays, 150k in debt, and you're just like, dude, this society cannot be it. This cannot be the only solution. And so as a result of that, people are really looking, and I think now is the time where Islam is really going to thrive. But it's only going to thrive if we welcome people. And that's the point that I make. Culturally, socially, politically, it has to be a place by which you enter into it and it welcomes you when you're there and it becomes easy for you to become part of it. When you see the Muslims, they're people that like, they treat you with respect. They treat you with dignity. They take care of you. When you order food at a Muslim restaurant, you know how Dave Chappelle became Muslim? Because the guy at the pizza shop that he was going to every day treated him with respect and dignity. And he was so passionate about Islam. And he's like, dude, what are these guys like? What are these guys on? And so he started inquiring, like, what makes you the way you are? Like, what makes you treat me the way you're treating me? And he inquired and he really loved what they were talking about. So he converted to Islam. So it's like people are missing something today, dude. It's very obvious that like even Muslims themselves, like the statistics that I mentioned to you, they're looking for something. And if we are not actively working to provide that for people, then we're not doing our job. And that's why I think like of the many things that are wrong and that we need to work on and actually work towards in the Muslim community, there's so many more important things than the political agendas that are out there right now. Yeah. It's this. It's this creating of the Muslim ummah for people to belong to the institutions, to the community, to the families, to the culture of Islam. I mentioned the top three of the issues in the Muslim community. Number four, I'd say is foreign policy. You got to stop killing Muslims around the world and we actually have to try to stop killing Muslims around the world. And then five, I would say, is this. It's actually probably number one or two, number two or three, but it's hypocrisy. It's Muslims fighting other Muslims. Um, and this idea of, like, there can only be one Muslim at the table, and we're all going to kill each other to be that one guy that gets to go to the White House of Tar, or we're going we're gonna to be that one guy who, like, gets to hang out with the, the celebrities and the influencers, and, like, the they make one show for Muslim a year on Netflix or Hulu, and I'm going to get that slot, like... You know what I mean? So this is the this is the model minority thing where it's like you try to become what the establishment, political, social, cultural elite wants you to become. So you sell out your soul, you sell out your religion, you sell out other Muslims in particular all the time in order for you to get to that top. Uh, and this is probably actually this is probably like number two or number three, which is just like Muslims selling out other Muslims. And it happens every day, like every institution I know of, every political space, economic space, social space community space that I know of, there's Muslims actively working to take down other Muslims. Mm, yeah, 
Absolutely. All the time. There's half the Muslim content on YouTube is Muslims coming after other Muslims. Yeah. And this guy's a kafir and this guy's a multid and this guy is like a liberal and that guy is this and this guy is that. Like, it's one, are you actually building the Muslim community when you're doing that? No, you're literally doing the opposite and taking people down and reducing our numbers. And that's my metrics. Are you growing the number of Muslims or are you reducing the number of Muslims? It's if you're doing if you're reducing the number of Muslims that are actively participating in the community or that are building institutions or that are raising money, then you're harming the Muslim community. You cannot make the argument that by taking out this Muslim, we've improved. You've reduced your numbers. Like, yeah. So that's why I'm like, everyone has to belong. Anyone who says has to belong. And we don't have to approve them. We don't have to like them. We don't have to like get along with everybody. But everyone has to belong. And I think that's the ultimate goal, man. So Omar, recently, um, a lot of events have been happening that I think woke a lot of Muslims up. And especially American Muslims, I believe we're in an interesting situation. My friend actually asked me this the other day, and this was my response to him. He said, why do we care about what, what's happening across the globe? These people are the only ones that can hash this out. No one else can hash this out. And my response to him was actually the Palestine-Israel conflict, the, bat, the true battle is in America. Mm. And the reason why is if you can convince American Jews, and this is what Israel understands too, if you can get American Jews to side with Palestine or to sympathize with Palestine, it weakens the Israeli cause completely. What do you think we as Muslim Americans or American Muslims outside of the conflict need to continue doing for when another event happens that we have even a stronger output than we've had this time, which has been very impressive? Mm. Yeah, man, I think that's a, this is the right question to be asking right now is like, what is the Muslim community capable of doing for itself? And I think for a lot of times, like I grew up in the post 9-11 era, which I don't know how old you are, but like you probably grew up in that era. I was in fourth grade when 9-11 happened. So in that moment, and for the last really 20 years, um, Muslims have been on the, like on your back foot, like on your, just like you're on defense, right? You're just like, just waiting for the, like the, the blow to come to you, to your community, to your family, et cetera. And you're not sure where it's coming from. So Muslims have been playing, like this just like trying to stay alive man trying to stay survive um trying to keep our communities afloat um but now in the last several years muslims have kind of switched gears a little bit or we're actually trying to now build and we're trying to get to this place uh where muslims are building their own community autonomously where we have our own resources we have our own institutions we have our own uh political uh agency and direction we have our own like people working in the academy, uh, professors, we have journalists, we have media, we got uh, like our own colleges, universities. So like Muslims are now beginning that process, I think in the West, in America, uh, and Europe's a little different, Canada's a little different, but in America of like actually forming our own agenda and forming our own priorities so that we can start to set that for itself. And I think that's like a really exciting time and with Palestine happening, with everything that's happening in Palestine recently in the past few months and, and uh, past few uh, month or two, is just that like it's brought up this question again of like, what does it mean to be part of a Muslim community? Um, and does the Muslim community have the ability to um, speak for itself? Like these are our issues, whether it be in Palestine, uh, in like uh, Sudan, in um and afghanistan what's happening with muslims in france like china china right so like there's all these issues around the world and there seems to be like a growing collective muslim consciousness right this collective identity this collective sense of to be muslim necessarily means these things um and it's it's actually kind of even though with all the tragedies that are happening in the world there's i feel like a lot of room for hope and optimism because we're seeing now people really dig in and do the work of like actually building a real community that has its own power has its own resources it has its own stuff to be able to do it um and it's happening man so i think um it's exciting to see i don't remember what your question was specifically but <laughs> i think you answered it Let, the, the first time we ever sat down our podcast yeah. is actually my first episode yeah, viewers yeah. might not know that you know that we spoke about liberalism and how yeah. What, what its relationship is with Muslims and what it should look like. Mm. 
What we found in this uh, conflict between Palestine and Israel, do you think that, that, that the relationship has been, do you think this relationship has been fruitful and do you think it should continue or where should we, where, where should we lie? Look, man, again, for the past, like, I think the, there's a lot of people commentating on this stuff that I think have very little understanding of how the political system works. And so there's people, a lot of people, especially commentating from not in America and even within America from places of like, you know, why is Omar Suleiman doing this? Why is Yaqeen doing this? Why is that? Why is that? But like, you have to first give people the benefit of the doubt, especially your leaders in your community to try to understand what it is they're doing and, and hope that they're trying to do the best. And first of all, like, I think there is a complete misunderstanding of how um, the whole game works. The whole game in politics, uh, in public opinion, is based off of, um, of power, right? So whoever controls a certain amount of votes, whoever controls a certain amount of money, that they can then influence policy, that they can influence agendas, whether it be foreign policy, whether it be domestic policy, taxes, whether it be immigration policy, etc., so the rules of the game are based off whoever has the votes and the money to be able to implement those things, right? And that the way that the system exists in America right now, there's two parties. There's the Republican Party and there's the Democrats. And for the last 20 years, the Republican Party has been the most the party that's trying to kill Muslims, like actively, like in Afghanistan, in Iraq, places all around the world. They're currently right now in 2023 and 2022, they're trying to actively go and bomb Iran. They're trying to start a war with uh, like Muslims and all over, like in, in Pakistan, they're, they're, people are victimized in Afghanistan again. They're trying to get back in there. In India, Muslims are, and the U.S. completely supports all of So there's people who are actively trying to kill Muslims, and that's the Republican Party for a lot of people. Uh, and I think a lot of Muslim conservatives forget that. Like for like the last 20 years, the Muslims have been actively like, web, like uh, a lot of the foreign policy, including like terrorism policy, including like, putting people in jails for in places like Guantanamo and, and, and all the surveillance states that and like all the cases that came out in New York of all these like FBI surveillances of Muslims, a lot of that was driven by conservatives. So like this idea that like the Republican party is better for Muslims is a strange idea to me because they've been actively killing us. And so on the other side of that is like, okay, well, like I said, you have these two hubs that you have to kind of work within to try to negotiate your space because Muslims are not yet in a place of having their own political alignments, right? And so for the last couple of years, like, yeah, Muslims have, a lot of Muslim leadership has aligned themselves with the Democratic Party because they're more open, right? They're more open to immigrants, they're more open to refugees, they're more open to uh, minorities, they're more open to different lives and different ways of life and faith systems, etc. And they're more supportive of that. But again, there's limitations for that, right? Like, the limitation is that they only want you to exist within one of many, right? They want you to be like, okay, here's the place for gay people, LGBT people, we have a place for black people, we have a place for white people, we have a place for Muslims, we have a place for Hindus, we have a place for all this stuff. And that's the kind of liberal vision, is that everyone is equal uh, and you give everyone their due. And Muslims, of course, have a problem with this, right? Because they're like, yes, we want our due, but we don't want to give anyone else their rights. So not it's like anyone else. Yeah, not anyone else, but like we don't want everyone to have the same kind of... We can't say that like the LGBT agenda is the as equal as the Muslim agenda, right? So that's obviously it's a problematic statement. But again, I think the first point I'm trying to make is that um, the Muslim community leadership as of late, especially like, the, especially like Obama onwards, um, has really tried to just maintain and negotiate a place for Muslims to survive and to thrive. And the only way to have done that politically um, recently has been to try to build alliances with groups such that, you know, they let you kind of do your thing. Um, and now it's changing, right? Now it's like, I think Muslims are getting to a place where they're realizing how much power that Muslims actually have, how many votes we actually have, how much money we actually have to be able to implement it. Because again, I remember I'd said like, unless you yourself, like certain communities, the Jewish community, um, other communities have their own money, power, resources, et cetera, to be able to implement their own policies, agenda, what they want for their community. And the Muslims have not had that. And now, like, because of the changes that have been happening, one is, like, Muslims have now matured, the community's matured, we've been here for a while, people are now, like, having high-ranking jobs, they're having wealth, etc. So now Muslims are be able to, like, have their own autonomy for their stuff. But up until now, that hasn't been possible. So I think, like, to look at people like Yaqeen or Omar Sayyidina or whoever, and to be, like, those people, like, 
are, are like harmful for the Muslim community is insane because like they're the ones who are negotiating for your right to survive. They're the ones who are negotiating for like laws that that like of uh, for the police to not surveil you at your home, to like the FBI to not surveil you at your home, for people to not read your emails, for people to like, and that's like the stuff that they're working on in coalitions with, right? Is like for Muslims to just survive. And that's what largely the Democratic Party has been like pushing back in the, against the neocons and the, this kind of fascist state, um, which of course has its own limitations. But like, um, again, so it's like, and remember with the Muslim and Trump too, the Muslim man, right? So it's like, there's what the, these coalitions that have been built is built for the purpose of creating Muslim survival. Um, and to look at that and say like, oh, we shouldn't have allied with these people because this is not, but it's like, okay, in that moment, you're talking about survival. You're not talking about like, um, where we are now, which is in a very different place. Some people would listen to our conversation and criticize that. Do you really want us to compromise and negotiate our principles just mm. for an easier life? Allah made this life difficult for a reason. Mm. The believer in this life is a prison for him and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, in, I guess in order to rephrase something I was trying to say earlier, and I couldn't, do you think the strategy that we've used in, in entering the Democratic Party has, has deemed to be fruitful in this conflict? Um, I mean, I think like, again, I'm not a political strategist. Like I'm not somebody who works at that level of like policy. And, and I just know a little bit about it, like some of the reasoning behind why certain leaders do what they do. Um, but like, in my opinion, uh, hindsight is 2020, right? So when you look behind, in, in the past, you can see like, oh, we should have done this and we should have done that. And yeah, sure, like from setting now in 2023, we can say like Muslims should not align themselves with the Democratic Party, right? And that's clear now because of the failures. But that wasn't clear when Trump was in office, right? That wasn't clear when like, uh, again, they're like banning Muslims from entering the country. They're like trying to start new wars with Muslims. And it was a very clear agenda to like try to hurt Muslims. And yes, sure, Trump might have done some positive things as well. But like the idea that like now we can look at it and say Muslims should never have aligned themselves with the Democratic Party, whereas like in the past we're forgetting like what the Trump years were like. We're forgetting like all the Islamophobic attacks that were occurring. We're forgetting like all the the neocons who were in office who were actively trying to start wars with Muslims uh, in in other countries and also in the U.S. So it's like in those in those moments you didn't have a choice. Like in those moments you had the community had to make certain moves to negotiate the death of Muslims. And even in the Sharia, like preservation of life is paramount, right? Like it's it's one of the fundamental causes. Is like if you have an opportunity to save a Muslim's life, you have to do that. And that's I think the the operational mentality that a lot of Muslims leaders were working with is like, well, dude, we're just trying to survive. Like we're trying to have this administration not kill us, not put us in prisons, not like torture us. And it's not just about us, right? It's about like like you said, the policy that gets made in America gets shipped overseas, and the decisions that are made in Washington are the decisions that get like implemented in terms of like. Uh, you know, bombings in terms of like uh, blockades, economic blockades, like what's happening with Iran in terms of like the 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 way they've been choking them in the um, what's it called the uh, the economic sanctions, right? Um, like the proxy wars that have been funded. So Muslims are literally like I'm not. It's not an exaggeration to say that Muslims are literally dying as a result of policies that are being made here. So if someone, so if Muslim leaders align with another group to try to convince that group to stop killing Muslims. And then now, like in 2023, we're like, that was a mistake because they support the LGBT people. So it's like, I think hindsight is 2020. But in that moment, I don't think they had really an option. I actually still think in hindsight that it was a good strategy. Mm. I have that controversial opinion. I think even if you look at the Palestinian protest, uh, the amount of LGBTQ people that came out, mm -hmm. we have to give them their due. They stood with us. Now, many Muslims say they only did it because they're like, all right, you saw us here when you were in trouble. You better be here when we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Some people think that was the intention. Whatever it may be, there, there's a lot of homosexual people online and on the ground actually helping the Palestinian cause. Dude, I got a hot take for you. You ready? Hmm. I don't think the LGBTQ issue matters for Muslims. I really don't. And it's not because... Oh, you were with me on this? Yes. And it's not because I'm saying that this is an issue Islamically. Islamically, everyone understands perfectly clear. There's no like misunderstanding about this. I'm not saying that it's justified within Islam or anything like that. I think that compared to the other problems that exist for Muslims in the West and in America, it's like maybe 10th on the list, dude. 
Because again, because if you look at again, Shari, this is a Shari argument, right? What is like some of the maqasid of Sharia, right? Like the objectives of Islamic law, preservation of life. Are the LGBT killing Muslims? No. Like, are the LGBT like actively taking people out of Islam? Maybe you can make an argument that like in some ways they are, but again, are they actively trying to like convert Muslims? No. There are other people actively trying to make people atheists, and the LGBT are not one of them. I would argue they are, but it's sure. not. It's not working as well as they think they are. Sure. I think it's yeah. backfiring. Yeah, but they're not. It's not like just the LGBT. It's the left in general, yes. right? So there's a difference. And I would say, are the LGBT actively trying to like destroy families? Maybe. Like in some sense, you might be able to say like they're trying to destroy some elements. Yeah, of they it. are. They are. They're, but they're, fundamentally, when it comes to like the the main element, which is number one for me, it's always about who's killing Muslims. Okay. When it comes to that issue, there's much greater problems in America and in the West. First of all, uh, suicide is a much, 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 much bigger issue in the Muslim community. Like I know myself, many people in my Meshit community in the past year or two, like several people 19 years old, 21 years old, 23 years old, 27 years old in their 40s that have committed suicide. I don't know a single person that's died from the LGBT movement. So like... That's I, I don't know a single, you, you know, just add on to that. I know a Muslim who's mm. committed suicide and I don't know a single Muslim who's left Islam for LGBTQ or killed by one. Yeah. But I actually do know two LGBTQ people who've converted to Islam. That's what I'm saying. So it's like if you're to rank the priorities, right? Suicide is mental health, like the depression that's actually happening is paramount for me. The second issue that I would say is people actually belonging to the Muslim community. Okay, so what institutions are available for people to belong to on a regular basis? And that for me is like, where is the support coming from? So like, if you're a Muslim, say for example, right? Like you're 19, you're 20 years old, you're 25 years old, and you want to have a place to go to to belong in the Muslim community, where are you going outside of? Maybe your masjid you're going to to pray, Maybe if you live in Dallas, right, you have a great community to come to, mashallah, but most people don't live in Dallas. Or maybe if you live in ICNYU, you have a great community. Maybe if you live like in... Uh, like Adams in Center, Northern Virginia. Adams Center, right, you have a place you can come to. But that's like, what, 3% of the U.S. population? Maybe less than that, maybe like 1% of the like, U.S. population in terms of Muslims. And if you have an issue that you have, let's say drug abuse, right, let's say addiction, let's say you have a problem in your marriage, Let's say you have uh, 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 mental health. Let's say you have like your, your spouse cheated on you. Like real, like real, real stuff. This stuff happens all the time. Porn addiction. Let's say you have like stuff that literally will kill people because Drugs. of the drug, like the amount of like mental toll that it puts on people that will lead them to self-harm, abuse, hurting other people, killing themselves, right? The amount of stuff. And also on top of that, like the fentanyl and the stuff that's in the streets, it's literally like killing people, like inadvertently. I know someone, a friend of mine, myself that I grew up with, who overdosed from fentanyl. Uh, and like, this is what I'm saying, like it's, it grew up in the community. Our, our message's having uh, civil wars all the time, quote unquote civil wars, yeah, like civil disputes. That has deemed to be something that I found made Muslims run away from Islam more than anything sure. in the United States, in my experience. Personally. 100%. And I think like there's with the Muslim community and a lot of immigrant communities, immigrant as in like not white, or minority communities, let's say, um, are being used, I think, in a proxy war between the left and the right in America. The left and the right have their own agendas, like politically, and they set the tone of conversation in terms of what is important. The conservatives will say what's important is fiscal policy, what's important is immigration, what's important uh, is like the American abortion. dream, abortion. The left will say what's important is minority rights, right? What's important is like uh, keeping people, like uh, uh, abolishing police and letting people be free. What's important is uh, like foreign policy, like saving babies around the world from like, and like women's rights, right? Feminism, like all these uh, different issues that they've deemed to be like, this is what's important for the state to do. The Muslims and like gender identity and all that kind of stuff, right? Like freedom for be able to express yourself um, uh, as you see fit. The Muslims then get wrapped up into these two things. And when other people set our agenda for us and tell us what's important for our community, we cannot let ourselves be wrapped up in that because you actually have to look at what is happening in your community. What is happening in your family? What is happening in your society and in your masjid 
uh, in your in your like ethnic community, whatever it is, religious community, if you actually pay attention to it, it is very hard pressed for me, because as someone who works day to day in the Muslim community, to say that the LGBT thing is like a top five thing for me, even a top ten thing for me. It doesn't even like it's something that's of course, like I said, Islamically clear, hundred percent is something that we have to deal with and work with, sure, but it's not even top five for me. What would you say is the top five or even top three issues? Though? So for me, I would say number one is uh, uh, Muslims being alive again. So like the various issues that are leading to what's called deaths of despair. And I encourage everyone to look this up. It's called Deaths of Despair by uh, a book that was written by a couple of uh, researchers, which look into what is, what is causing people to kill themselves in America. And Muslims, the statistic for Muslims is the same as the national average in almost every category. Meaning like the divorce rate in the Muslim community, same as the national average. The suicide rate in the Muslim community, same as the national average. The drug addiction rate in the Muslim community, same as the national average. So whatever you look at the national average, you can assume by and large that it's the same thing happening in the Muslim community. So when Muslims are dying because of any kinds of deaths of despair, meaning depression, anxiety, uh, a drug addiction, overdose, fentanyl, all these different kinds of things, that's number one for me. Number two, I would say, is Muslim belonging. Do Muslims actually have institutions, homes, places that they can belong to spiritually, morally, in person, where they can come to in a community setting and say, this is my home. Like, I have friends here. I have support here. I have social services here. I have mental health counseling here. I have spiritual counseling here. I can learn how to pray here. I can learn, like, you know, the, the fundamentals. I can, friends. I can make friends. Yeah. So that's the thing that I'm most passionate about is like a place of belonging where like, you feel as though this is my spiritual mental home. If I have a question about why are Muslims suffering in Palestine, am I going to watch YouTube videos or can I actually have a conversation with somebody in person and tell them how I feel about it? If I have like, if I, you know, if I went through a divorce, if my kid is like suffering from abuse or like my kid is suffering from like addiction, is there a place that I can go to in the Muslim community that can help me solve my issues? If I like lost my job and I can't pay my bills, where am I going to go? And like, or if just, I'm lonely. Like, what if I'm like, if I'm like graduated college and I'm 23, 24, I work remote, right? Which a lot of people do now these days. And I'm all my home, I'm at home all day, nine to five. I just moved to a new city. And now I'm just super lonely all the time, which is the number one thing that I see all the time. It's just deep, massive loneliness in America. Yeah. In particular in the Muslim community as well. And so that for me is number two. It's like creating actual sources for the Muslim community, Muslim individuals to not feel depressed, alone, suicidal, etc where you're actually solving those deep issues. And number three, I would say like building up Muslim institutions of power such that the Muslim community can then start to decide things for itself. That means building strong masajid, building strong universities, building strong economic hubs. So like building strong Muslim businesses. And as you see right now, like when the Palestine stuff happened, the entire like lobby right on the other side, which when we know who they are, every single big corporation, every single university, every single, like whether it be Booz Allen, Deloitte, Accenture, all the big top five firms, uh, McDonald's, Starbucks, they all got in line, right? And they all said, this is our marching orders. This is a, These are the groups of people we're going to support and we're not supporting Palestinians. Clear, off the bat, right? And money donated. And money donated. Hundreds of millions of dollars donated. Do Muslims have that kind of resources? Like, do Muslims have the, again, it all comes down to money and power, like money and votes. Have Muslims actually create real businesses of their own such that, does, is there like a Muslim Deloitte is there a Muslim Accenture? Is there a Muslim like, uh, you know, McDonald's or Starbucks and coffee shops that you can like real Muslim businesses that are thriving and that have their own autonomy, right? Autonomy is such that when something happens, no one's shutting them down. No one can come after them. Like no one can tell them, hey, you have to, here's the thing that you have to say for your whole company. Muslims, if we, have, if we own our own stuff, if we own our own businesses, if we own our own practices, if we own our own money, you can't do anything to you. And that's what I'm passionate about. Number three is like really building strong institutions, economically, politically, financially, such that the Muslim community can be able to say for itself, These, this is what we're doing, bro. Like, I don't care whether you like it or not. This is my institution. This is my business. This is my place. And this is what we're doing. Mm. And in America, you have the freedom to be able to do that. But we're not doing it. That's my problem. Is like, we just want to talk, bro. We just want to talk about like, oh, this guy should have said this and that guy should have did this and that guy... But it's like, are you actually putting in the work to build a community? Are you actually putting in the work, such as yourself, to create narratives within the public mainstream discourse, to create media of your own, 
to create channels of your own. We're seeing right now in mainstream media, right? Like how many uh, uh, people who are actually like on the ground in Gaza, like Martez and like a lot of these journalists and Ion Palestine accounts who are, they have a bigger reach than CNN. They have like 15 million followers Martez has. And he has more impact in what he says as one person and a lot of the other journalists than like a lot of these mainstream news because now people are opening their eyes. Because he's actually in that context of, of extreme difficulty, he's doing the work to actually build the narrative for the himself, for the community, and for the Ummah. And that's like my thing, right? So again, it's not even top five for me, like LGBT stuff. If you actually understand like what the needs of the Muslim community are, again, if you solve the LGBT issue completely, it's like it's disappeared off the face of the earth. None of these things are taken care of. It doesn't impact the bottom line of the Muslim community at all. And that's why for me, like whether you're part of that community or not, it doesn't change anything for me. Like, does it actually change like the nature of the Ummah? Does it actually change the nature of like Muslims again dying, Muslims converting, uh, Muslims having adequate family life? I don't think it actually does, to be honest with you. Like, there's individual people, sure. There's individual situations you can point to, like, oh, this person's family got affected, that person's uh, life got affected, this, this, and that. But it's not is, an existential crisis we're facing. That's exactly. It's not an existential crisis. The things that I'm talking about are an existential crisis of yes. like the survival of Muslims. And I think you're you're not just saying this. You're, you're actually doing it. Omar Nassini. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure having Dude, you, bro. Appreciate you, man. Appreciate all the work you're doing. May Allah bless you. May Allah increase you. May Allah uh, grant you all the resources, the people, the knowledge, uh, the the rahmah, the opening, the fatah, and all the work that you do. And may Allah grant you the, the sincerity to keep doing the work and the spirit uh, to continue with what you're doing, as well as uh, 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 the consistency and the work ethic. And may Allah grant you everything, bro. What a beautiful dad. Thank you. And for you as well. May Allah. Ah, me, bro. Bless you with everything you made the app for me for. Appreciate, Appreciate you, brother. brother. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining the Unsaudi podcast.